Today's reading comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1, 2, and 4. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated, and as you're seated, let me welcome you uh, and introduce myself. Welcome. Uh, I'm Brant, and there go my notes. Um, I'm Brant. I'm one of the members here of the team at Christ City Church. Uh, It's always a joy to to be able to share the Word of God with you this morning. Um, As we do, we're talking about blessed are those who mourn, and we need the Lord's help. We, We need His help this morning. So, would you again pray with me as we begin to cry out to him that, uh, that he would be at work amongst us? Heavenly Father, we just come before you right now and we have open hands. We, we have nothing to offer. We have everything to receive. Lord, would you speak to us through your word? Lord, wherever we are at this morning, would we see the comfort that is in Jesus Christ? Would you exalt him in our midst? Would we worship him together? Would you change us to become more like him as he works by his spirit? Father, we ask you to do what only you can. uh, And we love you. We thank you that you've promised to do it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this morning we're in our third uh, sermon of the uh, Sermon on the Mount series that, that we just began. And we will be in this series now for the next 30 weeks or so. We're really excited about it. I hope you've enjoyed the first couple so far. Uh, Definitely give them a listen if you haven't heard them yet. Fred sets a lot of foundation work that we'll be returning to in the sermons to come. Uh, But in case you weren't there for some reason or you're new here this morning, let me catch you up to speed a little bit uh, about what we've been introducing and how we've been uh, talking uh, about the sermon, especially as it pertains to the opening statements in the sermon, the Beatitudes that Fred introduced us to last week. So, uh, Fred said it best. He said that the Sermon on the Mount is uh, the greatest sermon preached by the greatest preacher ever. That's true. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. And then these statements, these Beatitudes, are these eight or these nine statements, depending on who's counting, uh, about blessedness that begin uh, the sermon and orient us to it. And what are the Beatitudes? Well, the Beatitudes are these descriptive statements about someone who has found the solution to the age-old question that, that all of humanity has been asking ever since the beginning, how can I be happy? How can I flourish? How can I truly be blessed? How can I find fulfillment? How can I be truly human? How can all of that happen? But here's where it gets a little bit weird, because these statements are this description of this blessedness that happens as we, as we come to see Jesus to be shaped by Jesus, to be transformed by by Jesus. And what happens as we do that is that he starts to make us into the people that are truly blessed. And when that happens, we realize that many of the ways that we had this old perspective about what blessedness was, was completely upside down. It was wrong. What we valued was not valuable. How we thought was, was not right. We were blind to true flourishing and happiness. But now we see You know, our problem is that we're used to living in this world that has its whole value system flipped on its head. It's upside down. 
We're in a world that, that values this reality that if I put myself forward and put myself ahead of everyone else, that's what blessedness is. Or, or if I live by a certain man-made morality, that that's blessedness. That that's what I should be doing. Or if I live just for this world and for all that I can get from it, that that's blessedness without realizing that there's a lot more going on than just this world. And Jesus confronts all of that in the Beatitudes. He flips our very way of perceiving reality and our own happiness and what it means to be a human being on its head. You know, as I was thinking about this this morning or this, this last week, I was wrestling with how can we illustrate that? So I'm going to give you an illustration this morning to try and illustrate all that I've just said and what, what, much of what Fred was saying as well uh, in the previous two weeks. So to illustrate this idea, imagine that you were in Nazi-occupied Holland in 1941. So just cue the, the sepia tone, imagination function in your brain. You know, start running those old World War II clips that you have because you've watched lots of YouTube videos hanging out with Fred. Um, imagine Amsterdam, for example. And in that city, what you would have seen was this oppressive regime that was operating to achieve what its version of the good life was what its version of human flourishing looked like. And it was fascism. It was national socialism. It was an oppressive understanding of what a human being is. And importantly, under that system, Jews and gay people and uh, those who have disabilities, they don't make the cut. They're not human. And they're systematically exterminated under that regime. They don't make the cut. And the good life for the average person under the Nazi regime, it looked like embracing Nazi Germany's plans. That's how you would have gotten ahead. That's how you would have advanced yourself in that society. It looked like succumbing to their twisted reality. And that was the only way to grow. So if you wanted to flourish under that system, once you were occupied, you might as well embrace your overlords, start tattling on your neighbors, and get with the program. That was how you were going to advance in this world. However, there were dissenters, of course. We, we, these are heroes that we look to. There were people who had a distinctly different set of values within occupied countries, or even in Germany itself. And they were these poignant countercultural witnesses to a different way of being human, to a different sort of value system of what human beings were, of what flourishing and blessedness are. But as they lived that out, they suffered for it. They suffered for it. Two women who lived a countercultural witness in Nazi-occupied Europe, for example, were Corrie Ten Boom and Andrea Galen. And if anyone knows how to pronounce that last name better than I do, by all means, correct me. Um, but these women were famous because despite Nazi oppression, they boldly lived for the benefit of those who were not valued under that system. They rescued thousands, them and others, of children and uh, adults who were, who were Jewish and disabled. And kept them from the furnaces. Now, when Corrie Ten Boom, though, as an example, and her family were found out, and when they were arrested and sent to a concentration camp, what, have, what would it have looked like to the average person? I think to the average person in that day, it would have looked like not blessing, certainly not flourishing, but something else. Hardship. Suffering and sorrow. And yet, on this side of history, would anyone argue that it was people like Corey Ten Boom who were living the true human flourishing life and not the Nazi guards in the concentration camp? Would anybody dispute that? 
Nobody would. Without question, Ten Boom and Gowlin and others like them lived into what it meant to be truly human and even to flourish as human beings despite their suffering. And importantly, the day came, the day came when they were liberated, when they were vindicated, when the hope that they longed for came. And the Allied forces changed everything. The Beatitudes are a little bit like this. When Jesus speaks to Beatitudes, it's like he's speaking into Corey Ten Boom's suffering from the vantage point of the liberation. When Jesus speaks to Beatitudes, he's speaking into the life of his followers from the vantage point of eternity with the knowledge that a resurrection, a liberation is coming and all will be well. So this is a massive theme in scripture, this, this hope and this expectation for all things being right when, when God himself returns. And throughout the Bible, the people of God then are referred to as the citizens, not of this world, but the citizens of heaven. And that Jesus is guarding their citizenship, protecting it for them. And, and one day, uh, his kingdom will be here on earth as it is in heaven. As we wait now, as we suffer now, as we hope now, and as we endure longing for it. And the person that lives this countercultural hope in Jesus is the blessed person. Living this countercultural hope in Jesus is the blessed person. Philippians 3 verse 20 says, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what are the Beatitudes? Well, to kind of summarize this longish introduction, in many ways they're a promissory note to exiles. They're a promissory note to citizens of Jesus' kingdom that following him despite suffering is a truly blessed life. That they'll be vindicated. And for those who aren't yet followers of Jesus and those who are around him who aren't yet followers listening in on the sermon, it's an invitation to see things in a different way. It's an invitation to come and look and get to catch a glimpse of a different way of being human about the truly blessed life as a follower of Jesus. Not going along with what the status quo is, but following him instead. It's an invitation to come to him so that he can start to work on you, to change what you value, and to make you into the sort of person who is blessed. So that's our a long intro. But I want to take the rest of our time this morning to dive together into this undercurrent that's all throughout that illustration, and that's the undercurrent of suffering. And we're going to do that as we jump into the second beatitude, which is a statement, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. We're going to unpack it. We're going to jump in, spend the rest of our time there. And as we do it, I want to just do two things. I want to have a two-point outline uh, for you. What is mourning, as Jesus describes it, point one? And what is comfort, as Jesus describes it, point two? So first point, what is mourning? Well, look what Jesus says in verse 4 again. He says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And I think we want to acknowledge right now that this beatitude, it ought to be doing something to our hearts. Right now, it has the potential to touch us in such a deep and intimate way because we're suffering. We're mourning. We're experiencing maybe a trial right now or a situation today maybe one in the recent past, or maybe one in the future that we aren't yet aware of. And the theologian D.A. Carson, he once said, if you live long enough, 
you will suffer. The only exception is that you don't live long enough. Everyone in this room has stories of mourning. Maybe it's the death or the injury of someone that you love. Maybe it's a phone call that you've recently received or that you once received or a situation that you remember just there in the front of your memory that still haunts you. Maybe it's sickness or disease or a diagnosis that you weren't expecting, you never thought you'd get. Maybe it's infertility. Maybe it's loneliness and you're just wondering, God, I want a friend. I need someone to draw near to me. I'm suffering. I'm mourning in this situation. Maybe it's your own sin. Maybe it's just seeing your sin day after day, wrestling with it, being discouraged by it, struggling with it, wishing it would be gone, and longing for a different tomorrow. Maybe it's the sin of someone else. Maybe it's the sin of others, and you look at their lives, and you want it to go away. Would that sin be gone? I see the hurt that's piling up, the pain on top of pain that they're causing, and I don't see any solution in sight. Maybe it's broken relationships. Something went wrong, and you wish you could change it. You don't know how. Maybe it's the rampant injustice in our world. Maybe it's the reality of human brokenness on a, on a global scale. With poverty and slavery and broken families and parents who give up their children. Or orphans. Or orphans because of oppression and because of regimes. Or refugee crises or famine and starvation. Maybe it's just the hardship that we live in a society that values our own autonomy over the lives of the most vulnerable. Or maybe it's just a plain and simple disappointment that now at this point in your life, you've lived for a long time and it didn't turn out the way that you thought it would. And you're just left broken on the wreckage of all of your hopes and all of your dreams. I think we can say that this world's a difficult place to live in. You know, many people have said things like, if we were to open up our eyes and look reality full in the face and see this world as it is, that we would not be able to get up in the morning. Morning is part and parcel of what it means to be a human being in a broken and sinful and corrupted world. But as awful as all of that is, here's my question. Is sadness and sorrow in general, the sort of mourning that Jesus is talking about? Is it the kind of thing that he's talking about when he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted? I mean, I've seen lots of sad people, and you probably have too, who don't appear to be blessed in any way. Does Jesus have every kind of mourning in mind here? Does he intend to pronounce a blessing on the person? For example, maybe you've been here, maybe you've been to a coffee shop this morning. And you watch that person who wandered in and who reached for the pastry that they always get and it was gone. And they were just angry. You know, their smile was turned into this angry frown and they were upset and short with the person at the till. And then they screwed up the latte and they left in a storm. You know, then they got outside and they saw that they had a parking ticket. You know, is Jesus intending to say, blessed are those who mourn to that person in the same breath that he says in verse 10, blessed are they that are persecuted for righteousness sake. No, I think there's something else going on here. What are the mourners that Jesus had in mind? Well, he has something in specific in mind. And to understand what Jesus is saying, we're going to have to dig a little deeper into Matthew's context. We're going to dive down now to, to see what is Jesus talking about exactly. 
Well, as you look at the context in Matthew, there's a lot that we could say here about the way that Matthew has set us up to see who Jesus truly is and who true mourners are in light of who he is. But I just want to say two things to you, two things to clarify who Jesus is and who true mourners are in light of who he is. So first I want to say, you know, Matthew's gospel's location in the Bible is a really important clue to who the true mourners are. So there's, there's two halves of the Bible, for those of you that aren't familiar with it. The, the first half of the Bible is full of the story of God's work of redeeming lost and sinful humanity through a particular family, the Jewish family, through whom Jesus comes as, and brings salvation to everyone. So all these promises are made in the first half of the Bible that then the New Testament, the, the second half of the Bible, start to speak of as Jesus comes on the scene in fulfillment to all the hopes and all the promises that were made beforehand. So really, Jesus is at the center And Matthew is the first book that comes on the second half of that center. So all of these longings and expectations are starting to be told, and the hope is starting to be fulfilled through Jesus, who Matthew speaks of. And that gives us a clue about, okay, what's going on here in terms of mourning and and longing for a different day and a solution, pointing to Jesus. And second, the way that Matthew begins his gospel also teaches us about the mourners that Jesus has in mind. Matthew begins his gospel. The first 17 verses are genealogy. And for those of you that don't know, genealogy is just, you know, uh, Brian had a son who had a daughter who had a daughter who had a son who had a daughter whose name was Julia. That's a genealogy. And now I know most of you don't look for hope in your sorrow and in your, and your mourning uh, by looking at your family tree. I mean, I don't do that. I don't like unpack and, you know, unroll the, the big book of the family history and say, all right, look, deep hope and comfort in my morning right now. I don't, I don't do that, neither do you. But the original audience that Matthew had in mind, they would have understood from this genealogy that Jesus was the promised descendant of their most famous king, whose name was David. They would have seen that Jesus was the one who had come now to fulfill all these promises that had been made about things being made right. Now, see what was promised in the first half of the Bible about this coming king. We'll just look at one text. Look at Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 5, and what it says about Jesus. In that text, speaking to those who are suffering and who are mourning, we read a word of hope about Jesus. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the rod with the, the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Evil will be gone when he appears. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. See, these passages and promises about Jesus that are, are like it, they're full of these themes of justice instead of oppression. Of righteousness instead of wickedness. Of a supremely good ruler in place of all the bad ones. It's something that we could really get behind, I think. Their hopes for a king who would finally come with the character and the conviction and the power and the righteousness to set things right once and for all. 
And these themes, they abound in the Bible and all of them point to Jesus. All of them find their fulfillment in Jesus who came and who spoke to us the words of the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew, he's prepared us to hope in the coming King, King Jesus. But far more, though, than just any old king. There is intertwined with all of these hopes for the king who would come, this idea that it's not just the king who would come, but it's the king who would be God. God bringing his own presence into our midst. God coming to dwell with us. God entering into our suffering and our sorrow to save us from it. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, it says this about Jesus' birth. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is God with us. And the story of the Bible is this long story of humanity separated from God because of our rejection of him and our sin and our rebellion. And God responding and planning and initiating our reconciliation to deal with our sin and to bring us back into relationship with him. So who is Jesus then? Who's Matthew set us up to see who Jesus is? Matthew set us up to see in his gospel that Jesus is God as king coming to mankind, not in judgment, but in grace. Not to condemn, but to save us from our sin. To save us from its consequences. That is who Jesus is. And as Matthew's gospel progresses towards the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew records the way then that that people responded to the arrival of Jesus as they caught glimpses of who he is and they came to him. That's so important. In their mourning, they came to Jesus. Look at Matthew 4, 24 to 25, which is a passage just before the Sermon on the Mount to see how Matthew sets us up for this. Look how these people come and they're suffering and they're paying to Jesus. Matthew writes, So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan, as all of these came to Jesus. So when we look at the story of the Bible, Matthew's gospel is placed in it, when we look carefully at what Matthew is saying in his gospel about who Jesus is and what he came to do, I think only then are we prepared to answer the question, who are the mourners that Matthew, Jesus first and Matthew, as he's recounting it to us, had in mind? Who are the mourners that Jesus speaks of? Well, the answer has everything to do not just with our mourning, not just with our sorrow, but what we do with it. The blessed mourners Matthew speaks of, they go to Jesus. The blessed mourners that Matthew speaks of go to Jesus. They run to Jesus in grief over their sin and the sin of this world. They run to Jesus in mourning over tragedy and outrage and injustice. They run to Jesus in the midst of all their unanswered whys. Why, God? How come this is happening? And they bring them to Jesus. They run to Jesus in mourning over death and disease and all manner of pain and suffering. They run to Jesus and they allow him to define for them what is right 
and what is wrong. And to be shaped by him to mourn even as Jesus mourns for the brokenness of this world. They run to Jesus for forgiveness for the sin that they've committed. For healing, for hope, for freedom. And to those people, you know what Jesus says? He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So I think that's what this means. We looked at that first part, the first question. Blessed are those who mourn. Who are the mourners? The mourners are those who come to Jesus in the midst of their pain and their grief. But what then does it look to be a blessed one who is comforted? What does it mean to be comforted? Well, turn with me to our second point this morning. What is comfort as Jesus defines it? Well, first of all, can we all agree this morning that comfort's a pretty big deal? Right? It's a pretty big deal. Um, We all pursue it. This world's edges are pretty hard. They're pretty severe. Tragedies all around us, I think we rarely summon up the courage to look tragedy and, and hardship directly in the face. And all of us, I think the universal truth is that all of us, when faced with our suffering and in the midst of our mourning, we long for comfort. We seek out comfort. And the reality is that this world that we live in has a huge option available for those who want comfort. Many, many options. Almost as many options, uh, almost as many comforts as there are possibilities for options. I mean, first and foremost, can we all agree that the, the first comfort that we go to is Netflix? Right? Today, I think number one comfort, Netflix after a hard day. Drugs. You know, I think that we try to use different prescriptions. Uh, some more uh, illicit than others to comfort us in the midst of our, our difficulty and our struggles. Some of us turn to food. I mean, I, I turn to food when things are hard. Food can be a great comfort. Alcohol, it's a, it's a long day. It's been a hard day at work. You come home and maybe just have a couple extra beers than you should. Looking for some comfort in the sorrow and the suffering. Uh, different avenues of self-help, you know, okay, maybe I'll just try a little harder myself and comfort myself that way. Or for those of us that are crazy, believe me, this is a thing, even licking frogs. If you haven't checked that out, go look on the internet after the service. Or fun, right? And lots of different ways of fun or adventure to try to, to numb the pain to get over when I'm suffering. I'll just, I'll just kind of have a lot of fun and I'll, I'll do that instead and that won't allow me to experience the pain. Or sex. Or a change of identity of some kind. Viewing myself in a different way, that'll, that'll take away the pain. Or distractions, or just maybe a career. Maybe, you know, if I just work harder and I don't take my head up from my desk and look up from my notes, then I'll not feel the pain of the suffering that I'm in. So here's the question. We have lots of ways to comfort ourselves in this world, but do they work? When my wife dies, or my child dies, when I'm diagnosed with cancer, when my dreams slip through my fingers and I'm cast adrift in my life, when I'm lonely and I can't seem to find a friend, when disaster strikes and our whole city suffers, when, when I come to the end of myself and my life is falling apart and I'm the one to blame, do these things work? Is this, cup, is this comfort good enough? You know, I think that drowning our sorrows does work for a little while. It's like a band-aid. 
but it won't satisfy the longing in our hearts. It won't satisfy the longing that we have for things to be made right and, and that longing for that ever beyond our fingertips home that we're desperate to find our comfort in. You know, on the other hand, some people, they look at the hard contours of reality and they try to face it not with pleasure, not with just different comforts in this way. They try to face it with stoicism. They say things like, you know, suffering is life, so just embrace it. Build a bridge and get over it already. You know, have a stiff upper lip. What's going on? Get over yourself. I mean, great? Is is that really helpful in the midst of our issues? No, stoicism is pretty popular today, but it's less than human. Because it solves the problem of human suffering by sealing our hearts off from the capacity to be vulnerable and to love. It makes us not more human. It makes us less human. As we suffer in this world, it seems that our options are either drowning in pleasure or sealing off our heart's capacity for love and vulnerability. Is, Is that all we have? No, praise God, no. We have the true comfort that Jesus speaks of. So what is that? What is the true comfort Jesus speaks of in contrast to all these things? Well, the comfort Jesus speaks of is to mourn without seeking false comfort. The comfort Jesus speaks of is to mourn as someone who's flourishing as a human being, looking reality full in the face, and to run into the comforting arms of a Savior King, the eternal God, come to earth in flesh, who promises to right all that is wrong. The comfort Jesus speaks of is his own steadfast love and his perfect grace. His absolute power and compassion and righteousness all coming together in a single person who is able and who promises to fix what is broken. It's coming to Jesus who can forgive. Who can reconcile us to the God we were made for. Who can restore us. For those who come to Jesus, the promise is that one day, despite the suffering and mourning that we experience now, we will rejoice. We will rejoice. The promise is that one day we will no longer wonder why anymore as we're comforted forever in the presence of God for all eternity. And all that is wrong is made right. The liberation is coming. And this morning, I wanted to read a passage of scripture for you from Jesus about the way that he speaks comfort. It's a prophetic passage from Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3, and he speaks it himself in Luke, in the Gospel of Luke. And if you're mourning, if you're suffering here, I want want you to hear these words on Jesus' mouth, speaking them into the midst of your mourning, an invitation to come to him to experience the comfort that only he can bring. Jesus says these words in fulfillment of this prophecy. He says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, and to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. The words of Jesus. 
Jesus has come to us with the promise of hope and of blessing. He's come to us as God to his people. He came to earth to bear the weight of the punishment of the sin that brought suffering here in the first place. And right now he offers to draw us out of the depths of our suffering and sin and into a relationship with himself, forgiven and reconciled and comforted in his presence now by his Holy Spirit with the hope of his return when he returns. And all things being made right. But there's more here because no matter how lonely you feel in your morning, we feel, we feel lonely in it, don't we? No matter how lonely you feel in your morning, Jesus offers us his presence as our comfort right now in the midst of it, as we endure and as we wait. The Bible teaches that our God is a trinity. It teaches that one God eternally exists in three persons. And the incredible outcome or the reality of that truth for our suffering right now is that even though Jesus is with the Father, his spirit, the Holy Spirit, is able to be with us now, presently as we suffer and as we endure. Paul talks about this. Look at Romans 5, verse 5. He talks about the hope that we have in Jesus for all things being made right and the the comfort of the Holy Spirit in our presence right now. He says this, his hope, hope, does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. As we wait In the midst of our suffering now, we've been given the helper. Another translation is the comforter, the encourager, who is with us, the Holy Spirit. Jesus has left us his perfect peace. He's left us the presence of God poured into our hearts to spur us along as we suffer and we long and we endure for his return. So what is comfort then? I think true comfort is this. It's to mourn over all that is wrong. It's to weep. It's to grieve. It's to long for a better day. It's to be invited to to mourn deeply. To look reality in the face and to cry about it. To weep over it. And to bring all of that mourning then to Jesus. And to fall into his arms. The arms of a mighty Savior who loves you who forgives you, who is with you by his spirit, and who is able to save, who promises to save, and who one day truly and finally will save and make all things right when he returns. It's to endure in this life in intimacy with God through Jesus Christ as we wait for him to return. And we've looked now at at mourning, Look at comfort, but as we wrap up, I want to address a big unanswered question. Because here's the thing. I, I know many of you are suffering right now. Many of you are mourning today. It's the reality that you're facing right now. And you're probably wondering, something along these lines, how do I grow rightly in mourning? How do I become more of this person who's comforted and who's blessed? Because right now, all I seem to be able to feel is just the pain and the poignancy of, of today and how hard it is. How do I get from, from where I am to where this passage needs to be talking about with all this hope? Well, first of all, I want to say there are no quick and easy solutions. There is no magic pill that we can take that will take away our sorrows. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about enduring. 
walking with Jesus, learning to experience his comfort as we live in a hostile world that's broken, as we long for him to come, and we wait and we anticipate his return. So how can we learn to walk with him more in our suffering and be comforted in it? To be the blessed person that this passage speaks of. Well, there are two things that we need to grow in as we mourn Christ City Church. I think number one is this. We will only grow as the mourners that Jesus describes if we respond to him in faith and if we draw near to him in our mourning. We need to go to Jesus like the crowds did. We need to draw near to Jesus. Because here's the thing. This is a beautiful reality. Jesus doesn't just offer us his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus offers us himself. So I have a question for you. Are you letting Jesus into your mourning? Are you letting him into the midst of the pain and the suffering that you're experiencing right now? Are you running to him? Are you seeking him? Are you being honest with him about what's going on in your life? Are you seeking him through the word, through prayer, and fellowship, and community, and worship? Are you coming to Jesus? Mourning is something really interesting in human beings' lives because it's so uncomfortable. It tries to move us away from mourning. And either we are moving in our mourning away uh, from the mourning uh, by comforting ourselves in, in maybe more of ourselves or in one of these false comforts, or we're moved out of our mourning towards Jesus. We're always going a certain direction. Which way are you going? Are you moving towards Jesus or towards something else? Number two, we will only grow in the comfort that Jesus promises if we mourn together in the community of the church. The Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, the teaching of the Bible, is not that we're just saved by ourselves individually. It's that God saves us into a family. We're called to grow as we mourn in a church, in a community. You can't be the blessed mourner who is comforted all by yourself. You'll only become this person as you hear Jesus' invitation to come to him and learn from him and participate in walking with him with all the brothers and sisters that you have around you to care for one another in the midst of your pain and suffering, to pray intimately together, to, to share the burdens that you have with one another, to come to church, come to the gathering on a Sunday morning looking to see the people that are suffering around you reaching out to them to care for them and to love them, to look to mourn with them and to walk with Jesus with them in the midst of what they're going through. It's to be a mourner who comes and is not hiding, but is seeking to, to go outward with their mourning and invite other peoples into it. We must comfort one another together as we have received comfort from God. You know, Paul talks about this. The Apostle Paul, he knew a, a thing or two about suffering and mourning and comfort. And he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 to 5, he talks about this idea of mourning together in community and growing as mourners. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction so that we, get that, we may be able to comfort those, that's us around one another, who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Let's mourn together. Let's mourn together. Let's grow together. And here's the promise from the word of God to you this morning. 
It said, as you draw near to Jesus and to one another in your mourning, then, then you will mourn over all that is not right. While emptying yourself as Jesus emptied himself to serve in his love and to learn to become healing for the wounds of the broken. Then you will learn to love what Jesus loves and hate what Jesus hates. Then you will long for this city like Jesus longed for Jerusalem to come and to know him and to know true comfort. Not false comfort, but to come and know true comfort that's only found in him. Then you will pray for them and you'll pray for one another. Then you will develop a taste for eternity. You'll begin to view the good life, not as a better paycheck, not as good health, not as some relationship that you don't have right now, but as more of Jesus, of more of God, of him increasing in your life in every way, walking with you, knowing him, him living through you, and you decreasing. Then you will long for him to come. You'll long like Corey Ten Boom and those like her, long for the day of liberation. You long, even so, come, Lord Jesus, come into this world and make it right. Fix all that is wrong. And then you'll read the words of Revelation 21, verses 3 to 4. And your heart will swell, and there will be nothing sweeter. There will be no greater comfort than knowing that this is our promise as we endure. That one day soon, this will be true. Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And then you will hear the words of Jesus, and you will be comforted, and you will be blessed. You'll hear these words which he spoke to his disciples. In John 16, 22, you have sorrow now, but I tell you, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take away your joy from you. Would you pray with me? Father, we do come to you. We come as broken people. And we come as those who, who, have much to mourn over. Our own sin, the sin of this world, the brokenness of the world. Lord, help us to bring all those things to you. Help us to grow to know the comfort that we have that's in Jesus. Help us to take our hopes off of false comforts and to pin them on Jesus. Would you work powerfully by your Holy Spirit to, to turn our eyes to you in the midst of our suffering and our grief? Would you comfort us? In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.